welcome to Resolved. We're glad you could join us this evening. Well, by the time most university students reach their final year of study, many start thinking about what they'd like to be doing in the following year. The prospect of freedom from books, chutes, referencing being an absolute godsend for most. But what if your dream job actually sees you stay on the university campus? To discuss this, we're joined by Travis McKenna, who is lecturing and tutoring at the University of Sydney, and on the line from Wagga Wagga, Hannah Hogg, a lecturer and tutor in professional writing at Charles Sturt University. Welcome to you both. It's lovely to be here. Absolutely. Now, for many students, their final year at university means it's their 16th year of study, longer if they've taken a gap year. What do you both find attractive about the academic life? Hannah, I'll throw to you first. I think for me, it was discovering throughout my own time as a student that I'm really passionate about what I do and that I love to learn as much as I love to complete a subject. It was not as much about the end goal for me as it was about the actual learning process. And so it seemed like a fairly natural development to then go on and teach what I have learned and to have an incredible opportunity, really, to pass on to undergraduate students the sorts of things that I was educated in. And I also also really lack the fact that it's quite a flexible job in some ways. Everything is different every single week and that's quite enjoyable on some level. For my part, I think I found most immediately attractive about the academic life how easy the pathway seemed to be in the sense that I finished honours and before I really knew it, I was filling out applications for PhDs and that kind of thing. And in some senses, it happens so quickly. And maybe this is not a great advertisement for the academic life, but often in the form of scholarships or tutoring money and that kind of thing, you're often seeing money that as a student, you've really not seen. In fact, that was my first impression of academic life. Some people find their niche very quickly, others don't. That's one of the problems maybe is that often young academics are pinholed very easily. Students can be quite horrible to their lecturers and tutors. How have you guys found the transition from life as a student to that as a lecturer? And do you have any amusing stories or anecdotes to share about life as academics so far? I actually teach visual arts students who are not boring in the least. They're a very entertaining bunch to teach and I've had a lot of laughs with them over the course of the semester and as in the manner of the content changing each week, the classes change each week as well and you're never quite sure what you're going to get next. In terms of the transition from life as a student to that of a lecturer, I think I found it easier because much in the same way as Travis, you do go into undergrad and then honours and you sort of progress and you find that they offer you work as you go along and you step up into it gradually and it is a massive step to go from doing some research assistance work and some marking work into being a subject coordinator with 100 students but at the same time there's also quite a lot of support within the faculty and to be working in a faculty with many of the lecturers who taught me has certainly made it easier I think and in terms of the the funny moments that you have with students I've had classes where they've started singing randomly in the middle of the class because an advertisement that I've just shown them that reminded them of vocal exercise they've done in other classes. It's a lot of fun in that way. Now you're both under 25, finished your undergraduate studies, considering or are already engaged in postgrad degrees, whilst lecturing and tutoring on the side. What have you done to ensure that the work that you love doesn't become tiresome or a chore? How do you prevent yourself from burning out? It depends, obviously, on what you do, but a lot of my work is in the kind of realm of philosophy and historical theory and that kind of thing, and it's very nice in that respect that it's a discipline without very many boundaries. If if you kind of look on the page for a department of philosophy generally around the world and you look at what people's research interests are, mostly you'll just get philosophy of and then various nouns listed. Uh, You often kind of have a carte blanche to be kind of look at what you like and be taken reasonably seriously, which means that... 
you never really feel like you're forced into looking at what you want to be looking at, which I found different in the Department of History. They tend to be a bit more conservative. And I would want to talk about postmodern approaches to histories and philosophies of histories. And people would kind of look at me and shrug and say, well, that's very interesting. But when are you going to get in an archive and do some proper history, which I was never even remotely interested in. So it depends on where you're situated and how easily it is to make sure that it doesn't become a trope. I would say mostly the key to it is being in a department and in a community of scholars where you can just do what you like. I would absolutely agree with Travis on that one. I have set topics every week, but at the same time, there's also room for me to do the sort of things that I like with that. And I'm certainly teaching within a faculty that I'm very passionate about. I like what I teach and that helps a lot. And I think staying current with what you're doing within your work to make sure that you are addressing things that are relevant to current society and to broader issues and that you are constantly staying on your growing edge as a lecturer and as a researcher to make sure that you are doing the things that are interesting to you, it, it really helps in terms of not letting it become tiresome. And I think in terms of burning out, it's just a matter of setting boundaries and sticking to them. I, I certainly commit to having a day off every single week and that helps a lot because it's not the sort of job that you walk away from at the end of the day. You do tend to take it home with you a little as anyone who's worked in education will know. I found one of the nice things in the Faculty of Science at Sydney Uni, a lot of people when they get even into the honours year are kind of accorded their own space in which to work offices and stuff. But I found that that was the one thing that helped me stay sane. When I finally got my own space to work in a postgrad space. I did a lot of my work from home before I had my own space simply because going to the library and kind of hoping to find a desk or a computer or something, to, it was all too cluttered. And I found that drove me nuts because obviously I'm less productive at home. I have my laptop, I have Football Manager 2014, I have all the nonsense that I spend my time doing and I would get less done and it would bleed into the evening hours and I'd feel unfulfilled. Whereas if you have a space that you can go to, it keeps you sane. You go there, you spend nine to five there and you can say, look, I've had a productive day, I've had an unproductive day, but either way, my day is finished and it's six o'clock and I'm home and I can have a glass of wine. Like us on Facebook, follow us on Twitter or visit our website nickshelley.com forward slash resolve. One criticism often levelled at universities and academics is that they are part of some intellectual bunyip aristocracy and are often out of touch with the concerns and issues faced by the everyday Australian. How do you guys respond to views like that and doesn't have any basis in reality at all. I think it's a very real accusation that can be levelled at, at a whole range of academic disciplines. And I don't necessarily think that's a problem. Working in philosophy is one where you are almost constantly accused or, or you feel very constantly on the defensive trying to justify the value of what you do. Abbott and such, before the election, were targeting someone from the, the University of Sydney philosophy department, as well as other people whose projects sounded variously inane. The explanation, at least, that I give is that thinking about things philosophically is far deeper at the core of everything that we hold to be useful. I mean, the scientific method is a set of philosophical principles. And to that end, thinking generally and thinking about things doesn't happen in a vacuum. And so academics, while not beholden to this need to be producing things that are directly useful to people, are kind of involved by proxy in this enterprise where they're kind of doing stuff that's useful. It's kind of like the idea that Nick and I might have a conversation about what it means to be moral and we might come across completely different things. But the fact that we've had that discussion somehow makes both of us more enriched and we think about things better. I, th I think it's that kind of thing. That being said, I don't think universities help themselves sometimes. I, I think it's very easy for career academics, the people who publish the papers and the people who publish completely inane papers, and there's papers that just shouldn't be published. And this kind of branching out of variously more specialized journals seems difficult to stop what we can do to arrest it. I, I haven't the first clue. I think it lies somewhere to do with the way that the corporate structures of American universities are driving this kind of growth. Whether we can arrest that, I, I haven't 
the first clue, hopefully. Otherwise, I think academia will become irrelevant. We do have a responsibility in some ways to open up a dialogue about what we're thinking about, which seems like such an intangible thing in some ways. But certainly working within the creative arts, we come across the same kinds of criticism that they come across in philosophy. But at the same time, what we do creates further engagement with artistic expression, not just within academic realms, but within broader society as well. A lot of my lecturers are quite heavily involved in other writing corporations and such things generally, and they're promoting that in general society, not just within the academic world. And I think that helps to perhaps ground what we do in relevant, wider social discourse. And I think that's a really important part of it. And certainly within some of the other fields I've worked in, such as sociology, it's an incredible privilege to be a research assistant on a project that's looking at intimate partner violence and how people in rural areas gain support in those situations and I think it would be difficult for someone to say that's not relevant or that is not of use to people in general society. I think it certainly is. Hannah Hogg, Charles State University is one of the leaders when it comes to distance education, both in Australia and the world. Do you think the move to distance education impacts upon the quality of education offered to students? Well, I'm actually off the land myself and I studied by distance in part, although for me it was usually integrated in with internal studies. And I think there are some wonderful positives that do come out of distance education. I think it's excellent for people who are potentially living in remote areas and that's certainly something that Australia has in droves, really. It's quite a a common thing for us to have students all over the countryside and for them to have the opportunity to engage in academic study in the same capacity as those who live in regional areas and in the cities is a wonderful thing. It's harder in some ways in that it does require a lot of self-discipline and a lot of self-motivation and I certainly know of quite a lot of students who say that they would struggle to do an entire degree by distance education and I completely respect them in that having done some myself. It is quite difficult but I think that the opportunities that it gives to those who are passionate about their study and who are committed to getting that degree and to going through the hard yards of being a distance education student, I think it is really wonderful for them to have that opportunity. And I think that if CSU did not have such a strong distance cohort, that Australia broadly as a country would suffer for that in some ways. There are certainly students out there who just quite simply would not get this opportunity if distance education didn't exist. Got a question you'd like resolved? Well, don't just sit there. Send it to us now on Facebook or Twitter or even our website, nickshelley.com forward slash resolved. Now, the federal government has announced in the federal budget that it will deregulate university fees to ensure our education sector doesn't fall behind. Don't quite understand the logic of that, but hey, we'll leave that to the side. This has led to student protests in all our capital cities, government MPs being heckled and a major TV show being held to ransom on air by a bunch of screaming students. Are students as angry on campus as they are on TV sets or is this all a media beat up? Travis, I'll throw to you first. Uh, Yes, I think they are. And I think they have the right to be angry. There are a lot of issues that really complicate it. I mean, higher and higher standards of education are now required for lower and lower standards of work. You need a bachelor's degree to be an administrative assistant, it seems nowadays, at least in a capital city. And to that end, kind of be told we are feeling too entitled in this respect by, quite frankly, an older generation who did receive education for free with very few strings attached is, is unsettling. I think it's the temptation to reduce this entire generation to a caricature appears 
appears too strong for a lot of the media to resist. And that's unsettling because it narrows the political discourse to something that's two-dimensional and unsatisfying. I know on the University of Sydney campus had a huge involvement in the Julie Bishop thing and the, the ministers being heckled. And, and as well, I knew some of the people that were involved in that Q&A or uprising or, or whatever you like to call it. But I think if I can say something about it, it would be this. The attitude of students that I've spoken to, and I don't, and I don't mean to speak for students everywhere, is that it was represented exactly by what Tony Jones said after Q&A had been interrupted. And now democracy can continue or something like that. And I think this is in fact where a lot of the anger lies. The idea that five or six older generational people, all of whom received a free education, some of whom government ministers in a, in a highly produced and controlled environment talking about things in a moderated discourse, somehow is tangible to democracy itself. And that we can't interrupt that for our anger or emotion is, is I think, one of the more infuriating and more condescending attitudes taken towards students in this time. And I think the pushback against that is, well, we have to yell, we have to heckle, we have to do it because because otherwise we, we probably won't be listened to. What do you both think of the argument advocated by some that the near universal access that young people have to a bachelor's degree nowadays has cheapened the value of the qualification? Is there any truth to that at all? Well, yes, but I mean, what needs to be fixed first to provide any real solution to young people is that the labour market is the thing that needs to be fixed first. We have a situation where bachelor's degrees are seen as very cheap, um, then you can't just stop people getting bachelor's degrees because that will obviously have real consequences. There are situations like pharmacy. Government deregulation of the pharmacy education industry leads to too many pharmacists and an oversaturation. I mean, these are not things that happen in vacuums. Governments are responsible for what a bachelor's degree is worth, and it's irresponsible for the government then to say, well, look, we've messed up and we have to cut a generation off from education to fix it. I think part of it, from my perspective, is as students, we have even more of a responsibility now. And perhaps this is not the ideal situation to be in, but I think we are forced into it in some capacity to consider when we choose whether or not to do a degree, whether or not that is actually the most viable option for us in terms of getting into our chosen career. And I think that in pursuing a bachelor's degree, we do need to consider that quite carefully, perhaps more carefully than we did in the past. I think there was certainly an attitude within older generations that your bachelor's degree is essentially a ticket to the world. Once you've got it, you can get a job and you can be secure in that. It's the thing that will get you where you want to go. And it seems as though that is not as much the case anymore. It seems a lot harder. I certainly know of a lot of new graduates who are excellent students and are really, really skilled in their fields who have struggled enormously to try and get steady full-time work. They're just not getting the jobs. And there's certainly a lot of competition for the jobs as well. And perhaps the fact that there are so many people now who do have a bachelor's degree means that there isn't as much division in the applicant for positions that a lot of us do stand on an equal footing and there's not as much to differentiate you from the next person, which could in turn make it harder to get a job, perhaps. What challenges do you foresee educators and students facing in the coming years? The rise of technology, actually, is sort of a, a blessing and a burden, certainly for someone who teaches English as a literature major. We have, I think, a unique challenge as compared to some faculties in trying to still get our students to engage with classic literature and with actual tangible books when everything is available online and answers are expected to be quick and snappy and available through a quick Google search. 
And that's certainly changed the delivery of our subjects in particular, I think. And there's certainly a lot of positives that come out of technology. It's wonderful to be so connected and to have so many resources available to us as lecturers and as students. But it also does raise some interesting things in that we are still trying to get our students to engage with the arts on a broader sense as well and to still engage with 700-page novels and things when perhaps what they're used to is a, you know, a, a Twitter post or something like that. All right, that's about where we're going to have to leave it. Travis McKenna and Hannah Hogg, thank you both for your time. Thank you very much for having me. Yes, thanks for having us. For past episodes and extended interviews, check out the Resolved podcast available on the iTunes Store or visit our website, nickshelley.com forward slash resolved. Next week, Children of the Revolution. We'll be chatting to Ben Gilheim about university fee deregulation, the recent student protests that we've seen on our streets and what it's like to be involved in the world of student politics. Until then, stay resolved, Australia. Bye for now.